Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I'm joined by Chloe Lai of the heritage organisation Urban Diary. Chloe has been on the programme before and her main focus is to collect stories of the lives of a whole variety of people in Hong Kong for her Urban Diary website. One of those stories is the life of Michael Wright, the former director of the Public Works Department, as told by the man himself in a documentary created by Chloe called The Michael Wright Chronicle. Mr Wright is now 104 and lives in London. He carried out the interviews for the documentary last year. He was born in Hong Kong in 1912 and would later fight in the defence of Hong Kong after the Japanese military invasion in December 1941 before becoming a prisoner of war for nearly four years. Michael Wright was appalled by the living conditions of many Chinese, particularly as tens of thousands of refugees poured in after the Communist Revolution in 1949. He was instrumental in creating the first resettlement blocks here. Chloe tells me about interviewing Michael Wright and an upcoming screening of the one-hour documentary. My name's Chloe Lai. I am working for Urban Diary, uh, which is a... NGO in the form of a website. We document stories of Hong Kong people and put them, putting them together and turn it into a Hong Kong story. Now, Michael Wright is now, what, 104 years old? Uh, exactly. Uh, Michael Wright is 104 years old. We went to London when he was 103 and did a extended interview with him lasted for one and a half months we met regularly and each of the sections lasts for about two hours because he's already very old so he can't talk more than two hours Yes, I mean, and also when you're trying to uh, remember different names, different places, I think he does an extraordinary job considering his age. And this you've turned into a 60-minute documentary. Exactly. We did an interview first, and then based on what he told us um, in the interview, we divided the material into a number of themes and then film the documentary at the end of the interview and then ask him to tell his story again in terms of those themes we set. My name is Michael Wright, or the whole name is Alec Michael John. I was born in Hong Kong at the Victoria Hospital, which is in Barker Road. I stayed in Hong Kong till I was eight years old when I came to England to school. My grandfather was a Yorkshireman, and um, I think he was trained at a severe, and somewhere about 1885, I'm not sure of the exact date, he went out to Hong Kong, as a lot of young men did in those days, and um, he um, worked in the old post office building, which has now been demolished, um, as a racing surveyor, and he became the, the head of the department eventually. My father, meanwhile, on the other side of the family, had, was brought up in Kingston-on-Thames, and um, he was trained as a surveyor, and he uh, went out to Hong Kong as a young man, aged 24 or 25, and again and got a job in the Public Works Department. And he was quite a good singer, and he joined the cathedral and joined the choir, and that's where he met my mother. See, she was the, um, she, she was, the, I said, the uh, assistant organist. And they got married in, I think, in 1910. And I was the second child. I had a brother who was, there was must be my brother who was born and, uh, in 1911, and then I was born in 1912. 
Why did you pick Michael Wright? I mean, of, of course, he's very old, and he formerly headed up the Public Works Department. Uh, exactly. Well, I've aware of Michael Wright for a number of years. Several years ago, when I was still in journalism, I covered the campaign to save the Government Hill, the West Wing of the former government headquarters, and then uh, the campaigners uh, went to London and interviewed Michael. They made a video of the interview and put it up on YouTube. And during that period of time, I reported that interview. So I was aware of this person, and I was aware of his contribution to Hong Kong, but only rather little. And then, because I was doing my PhD research. Uh, which is also about housing in Hong Kong, and I came across more material on his role in housing. So there was an occasion that I went to London for work. So I got his contact from the campaigner, and I went to see him because I did a exhibition on some shirtpole before. So I took that booklet with me as a gift to Michael, and when I took out that booklet. And he saw the work Sumshirpole, and then he had reaction immediately. And he said, "Oh, I've been staying in the internment camp for nearly four years." And then he started telling me his stories in Sumshirpole war camp. And then he also showed me drawings he made when he was interning in the camp. So I thought, well, that's incredible because I met some old people before who who've gone through the war. But then their memory was not as good or as sharp as Michael was having with the war and then with the documentations he's got with the war. So I thought I really should interview him when he's still around, and that's how we started the project. So I came back to Hong Kong and then put together the trip and went to see him again for the interview. Now you're going to be showing this one-hour documentary actually at the Conservancy Association on March the 17th. Yes, we'll be showing the documentary in the Conservancy Association's Heritage Centre, which is in Shenhuan. It will be a Friday evening. The maximum number of people we can accommodate is 45 people because、um, the venue's restriction because of the screen. But you're going to probably do a series of screenings, do you reckon? Yes, I think so. We are looking for venues, and yes, whoever have venues and whoever interested in showing the film. Uh, can approach us, and then we will show the film because the whole thing is is about the story that people need to know. We think people ought to know that story because it has, it is a very important part of Hong Kong. The beauty of Hong Kong was was its safety, its quietness. My, we used to my brother and I used to walk into town with my mother on a Saturday morning, and、um, it was really quite a quite a long walk down Magazine Gap Road. No cars, of course. And we used to go to a cafe called Wiseman's. I remember having sticky buns there. It was it was always a great occasion. We would get the peak tram back, and then walk from Barker Road Station along Barker Road and down to down to our house.、Uh, going to school was really quite an adventure because we had、um, a chair to take us. My brother and I shared a chair. It was quite a, quite a long way from our house in Coombe Road to the peak school. And um, uh, we um, coming home, the、uh, market coolie 
would bring two scooters to school and my brother and my leg would come all the way back with a free wheel all the way back from the beat school back to our house on our, on our scooters. We had one friend who had a donkey and the same thing happened with when he came to school on his donkey and then he, uh, he was connected on his donkey. Occasionally we did a swap and he would, he would borrow our scooters and I would have a ride back on his donkey but um, I preferred my scooter. Yeah, I mean, he was born in 1912, Michael Wright, and uh, he does go to England for schooling, but, I mean, then he returns. So, I mean, his story absolutely follows the decades of Hong Kong's development. And um, I'm just reading a book now called Guido about a, a small boy uh, about the same age as I was and his adventures in Hong Kong, first on Kowloon's side, and then subsequently he and his family came to live on the peak. And... Um, reading the book, I'm reading, rereading the book now, and he did much the same sort of things as we used to do, although he was doing it 40 years later. But he's also, as head of the Public Works Department, he encounters droughts, he's, he's you know, all about Hong Kong, also about wa Hong Kong's water supply and the politics that goes with that. Yes, exactly. Um, he was born in Hong Kong in 1912, so uh, there was one section of the film about his childhood in the peak. So, so it gives you an idea what all Hong Kong like in those days. Uh, very difficult for us nowadays to imagine those times. And then he spent some time in England for his education, and after that he came back to Hong Kong in 1938 after he found a job with the Public Works Department and then several years after he came back to Hong Kong came the Battle of Hong Kong and then he defended Hong Kong and he was interned. We were not all that badly treated. I mean, we were ignored. As long as we behaved ourselves, uh, the Japanese didn't take much notice of us. We had to uh, bow to every time we saw a Japanese soldier, we had to bow. And if we didn't bow, we got our faces sacked. Um, and but uh, on the whole, they left us alone. We um, they brought in food every day, but it was very poor food. We just had uh, well, plenty of rice, had rice every day, and um, vegetables. No, no meat, no fish, nothing like that. We just for three and a half years lived on rice and mainly chrysanthemum leaves, which um, are a bit tasteless. They're just boiled up like spinach. And then we suddenly we had pumpkins, and um, uh, but very, very occasionally they'd bring in some dried fish. We did a lot of trading with the sentries, and if we had anything, gold as a wearable watch or cufflinks or fountain pen, we could sell these things to the sentries, and we could get military yen. Some people spent the military in on cigarettes. There was always a big sale, black market for cigarettes. But also you could buy through the century dried fish or, or dried beans, which would supplement our, our diet. And after that, he re returned to the government and, and continued working for the uh, Public Works Department as an architect and then, and then chief architect. He was instrumental to the resettlement block, the first, actually, all the resettlement blocks, especially those first put up in Shakime immediately after the Shakime fire. So he was instrumental on influencing the design of the resettlement estates. Hong Kong was just an incredible mess. It's unbelievable that the Japanese, who must have expected to win the war, 
in the, for the first couple of years we were in the prison camp with every occupation of Hong Kong and they just let the place go to rack and ruin. There were um, landslides above mid-levels. Um, they never bothered to clear the roads. There were trees growing out of the roads on the Beaker Magazine Gap. Uh, so it went going to a restaurant and there were rats. Um, cinema, there were rats running along the back of the seats in front of you. It was it was unbelievable that they had uh, let it, 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 it. There were no cars. Uh, they stripped Hong Kong. They took all the cars up to Japan, and the only means of transport was to either uh, go pillion on a bicycle, or in, in one case, I've been out to Pok Fulham and I came back. Part I walked to Pok Fulham and I came back on the back of a. Um, homemade scooter, a little, little boy in front, and I sat on the platform behind and uh, down from Pokpulom to Kennedy Town, or downhill, safely a bit of walking. And um, there was, uh, the, slowly, about, after about a week, the trams got going again. There was electricity provided, I think, from um, uh, one of the big ships that had come into the harbour, one of the submarine depot ships. And also, of course, a, a priority was to get the um, power stations working again so there would be electricity in Hong Kong. And then eventually he was director of public works, so he was involved in the construction of roads and reservoirs and, and blah, blah, blah. So, so <laughs> his stories is really a Hong Kong story. When the war finished, the big influx of the Chinese came back to Hong Kong. The population had come down to about 500,000. And they quickly came back, Hong Kong residents were got out, and also um, a lot of refugees came from China, and the Hong Kong population grew very, very quickly. But the, Hong, the, the governments of Hong Kong had the policy of leaving housing of the ordinary man in the street to private enterprise. They were, not, they were not concerned with that. And there was a certain amount of pressure from the Bishop of Hong Kong in about um, um, two, three years after the war finished uh, to do some housing and the housing society was started but this is a non-government thing and government, the Hong Kong government kept out of housing until there's a very very big squatter fire at Chepkit Bay and something like 80,000 people were made homeless overnight the government had to do something about it and so the um, first thing was to dish out a lot of uh, corrugated iron and clapboards and so on. They put up shelters in the street. But within a matter of days, they were building what were called barring bungalows. These were two-storey buildings with um, a, a corridor and um, opening into uh, rooms that were, I think, 10 by 12, 120 square feet. And uh, while these were, these were put up very, very quickly, and while they were being built, they were designing six-storey buildings, which became resettlement blocks. And these were um, almost as soon as possible. Uh, they were put up within within weeks, almost. They began construction of the of the resettlement blocks, which were six-storey work-up walk-up ones, very, very crude with, again, a series of rooms, 12 by 10, and on the roof there would be a, school, a little structure at each end which would be used as a school classroom, and the uh, 
roof would be as a playground for the children. <clears throat> they had no kitchens, they had communal lavatories, they were very, very basic. And um, slowly over the years, uh, these were improved. So what's he like when you met him? I mean, that's a lot of trust that he was also putting in with you because, you know, that's um, a lot of hours with this uh, woman who's just come in from Hong Kong. Yes, I think so. I think he's very kind that he agreed to meet me and then spending time regularly with me and then um, sharing his stories. And then he also showed me family photos and then all the clippings he've got, he, he kept, and then uh, some of the letters, family letters, and then also letters he received, for example, from the governor on his appointment to the Legislative Council, that sort of thing. I'm always amazed by how good his memory is, and then he remembers things so well, and then he talk, um, he can, you can have normal conversation with him as if he's only in his 60s. I was interested just, you know, when you look at the childhood and how quiet he describes how it was. They walked everywhere and occasionally they would have a scooter brought to them uh, at the end of school when they were at the peak school so they could scooter their way back home. Um, and their friend also uh, rode on a donkey so that's a that's a very sort of idyllic for them and at least a very privileged to uh, childhood in comparison to many Hong Kongers but in terms of later on I mean what would you have said was something that truly made an impact on you when he was talking during his interview well I'm always amazed by his humanities um, he told me that, well, in the film, we, we spent a significant proportion of the film on, on the resettlement blocks. He came back to Hong Kong and then he find the living condition of the Chinese people in the tenement buildings appalling. Well, there are two parts of his life which I find incredible. One part is how he fought in the war, how you prepare when you knew that there's very big chance you cannot survive. You know, you fought the war, you fought the enemy. You don't know whether you can survive the war. And then after that, you were interned. And then you don't know whether you can survive the intern. And and then he survived. That is incredible. I, If I were him, I'm not sure how I would react, you know, fighting a war. And then the other thing is the humanity towards the, the people living in Hong Kong, how he tried his best to improve their living condition because that's the budget he got and then how he can make the best out of the budget he got. And then uh, the other thing also um, I find it incredible was how Hong Kong deal with the refugee crisis immediately after the war. And after 1949, the Communist Party took over China because if we look at Europe nowadays, they have refugees going to Europe, millions of people. We know that there are strong reaction against the refugees and then in terms of how society coping the influx of refugees. But that is Europe now. But then we're talking about Hong Kong after the war. Hong Kong itself is war-torn. Everything's being you know, destroyed. And then we have these refugees and then we have to accommodate refugees. I know that in those days there are many criticisms against how the Hong Kong government reacted to the refugee crisis, not acting promptly enough to help them. And then that is also echoed by 
That was echoed by Michael in those days and Michael nowadays. He still thinks that the government should react faster, should build public housing before the Shakime crisis. But then, as a as somebody of this generation, and compare the situation confronts them in those days, and then situation confronts Europe, I find it incredible that the response. It is true that maybe they have to react quickly, but then still there's this. Thing that's being handled, and 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 I find it amazing. And you know the reaction of Hong Kong. What that they, that they coped with the refugees. Yeah, they coped with the refugees, the the people, and then the government as well. And then how architects like Michael and his colleagues, using the very limited resources they've got, to put up buildings as decent as possible for these people. So I find it incredible, and and I think that is a story that everyone in Hong Kong should know. You said you sent the the documentary to Michael Wright, but when you first approached him and said, you know, I'd be interested in documenting your life,、mm-hmm. what was his reaction? I mean, did he see the value of it? Well, he's a very humble person. He doesn't like to talk about himself. So when I first made the proposal, he said, "Well, actually,、um, I think a." Obituary in the SEMP、oh. is good enough for me.、Oh. Yeah. So and then, but I said no, no, no. I don't think that's that's is enough. I, we, you know, because you got so many informations which is so available,、uh, which is so valuable to Hong Kong. So he agreed. But then he always want to divert attention away from himself. He want to talk about the general situation rather than his own. Contribution, and he always think it is a teamwork. What do we know about his family life? His daughter lives in Hong Kong, so she visits Michael quite often、um, in London. And then、um, when I went to see him, there was、um, Kara staying in Kara, taking care of him. When I first went to saw him, when I during my first visit, he he lives alone.、Um, there was a day Kara. Who, who went to see him every morning, make sure that he's fine, and he is very persistent on taking care of himself. In our first meeting, because he's walking with his sticks, and he told me he couldn't walk very well. And then I told him that some people, old people, remodel their home, and then so they can sit on a wheelchair and then in their home. And then that idea annoyed him. He resisted kind of, you know. He insists taking care of himself, walking and doing things, you know, making teas and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. His favorite food is Peking duck,、so、<laughs> and his daughter Romaine took him to have Peking duck every time when she is <laughs> in London. And then when I took him to the restaurant to have Peking duck, and they remember, the waitress remembers him and asks.、Um, As the whereabouts of his daughter, obviously they go there quite often. Chloe Lai there of Urban Diary, which is sponsored by the company Oval. There will be a screening of the 60-minute documentary, The Michael Wright Chronicle, next Friday, March the 17th, at the Conservancy Association Centre for Heritage, at 36 Western Street in Saiyingpun. For more details, see the Urban Diary website or Facebook page. You can also contact Chloe there if your organisation would like to screen the documentary. And now. It's Hong Kong Heritage Question Time from Guolao dot com. This week, David, you'd like people to go down memory lane. Yes, that's right. We've been gathering details of old cinemas. 
but it's all a bit dry at the moment. We've got about 200 and something of them, and we know when they open, we know when they closed. But now it'd be great to know a little bit more, what, the, what were they like? Um, you know, did you have a favourite cinema you used to like going to? What was it like going to the cinema 30, 40, even 50 years ago? So those sort of memories would be great to hear. Yeah, that would be absolutely lovely. So I think that the whole cinematic experience of going along, getting your ticket, um, the plush carpet, I, I find, uh, I have to say, I'm, I wonder if I sometimes live in the wrong era. I find it all a bit industrial these days, your great big bucket of popcorn and also choosing your seat on a computer. I know, yes. When we first came here, it's 89, used to go... Um, to the Ocean Cinema, you know, the one in TST. And at that stage, it was still the two levels. You had the, the balcony and then the stores downstairs. And you'd have to go there in person, and there'd be a lady with one big sheet of paper for every single show they were going to have. And you'd point to your tickets, and she had this big red crayon, and she'd, you know, knock out, knock out the seats you've booked and then scribble on your tickets, and off you went. <laughs> As you say, none of the online or booking no. by mobile. No, I find some of that lacks soul. I mean, it's practical, sure, but I don't think it has, you know, I, I like some of the the more old-fashioned kind of traditions in a way. And also, mm. would you have had ushers with little pots of ice cream? <laughs> I don't know if we still had ushers then. <laughs> I was trying to think when the old old pictures used to go as well. You remember all the cinema posters used to be painted? When did they stop doing that? Oh, that's yeah, that's another one. So with the question then, or su- as such experiences really, that if you'd like to send to David at uh, com, so that's the uh, Hong Kong history website that features regularly on this programme, and it's uh, david at com. If you've got any kind of memories of going to the cinema, you know, upwards of... Uh, two decades and up um, here in Hong Kong and perhaps some of the films that you saw at that time. Now, you've also been investigating another cinema that actually dated back to the 1930s. That's right. A couple of weeks ago, we asked if anyone had any information. It's a cinema in, in Hong Kong, the Mei Chu, and we thought originally it was only open for one year, but someone did reply and they've got information of it going back to 1924. So it's been around a bit longer than we thought. Still no, no photos, though, so still hoping to see a picture of it. So this was the Meichu, so C-H-I-U approximately, the, the Meichu theatre that was also a, a cinema that uh, was in Hong Kong. Now we can date it back to the mid-1920s. So it was open, what, for about nine years? Yeah, somewhere around there, yes. So, so definitely longer than we, we first thought. So both your cinema memories and if you know any more about the Meichu theatre, which was also uh, a cinema in Hong Kong, then please get hold of... David at david at com. Now, an earlier question we asked a few weeks ago was actually um, had illegal overtones, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. We were looking for anything to do with the judiciary, whether judges or courts. And again, we've had some contact. A gentleman sent in information about Sir Joseph Kemp. So he was the chief justice here before World War Two. That's a great start, but still on the lookout for any other goodies there. So can you remind me what, what exactly you're looking for? Is it it's, it's photos, but of what, to do with the judiciary? Yes, it is photos, but pretty broad. Um, could be court buildings, people involved with courts, famous court cases, and especially interiors of any of the court buildings. That would be great to see. And if you have uh, any photographs that you would like to scan and send to David, that's david at com. And in the meantime, David, have a lovely holiday. Thank you very much. Be in touch again in a few weeks' time. Next week, Mark O'Neill tells me about the life of Sir Robert Hart, who was a British diplomat in China, who served as the second Inspector General of China's Imperial Maritime Customs Service for nearly 50 years. So he was there during the period of China's greatest weakness when 
China was being gobbled up by all these different foreign powers. But he was sitting on the side of the, the Chinese government, not on the foreign power side. So it's a really extraordinary position he was in. And how is it that he could have this position for so long? Well, it was because he gained the trust and confidence of the, not all the Chinese leaders, but many of them. And they trusted him and they looked upon him not only as the head of the customs, but they looked upon him as a diplomat and as advisor. They, they wanted him to help them with everything. As I say, the, the first line of the book is that no foreigner in China has ever had the life as he has had, nor will they ever have in the future. In, in the future, we cannot imagine the Chinese government would hire a foreigner to have an important post for such a long time. Mark O'Neill there on Sir Robert Hart. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>